Here's an HIV pill dilemma for you. Picture the scene. There's a rooftop sunset with fairy lights and you're vibing with friends. You remember you've got to take your HIV pill. Important, yes, but the fun moment is gone. Did you know there's a long-acting treatment option available? So catch the sunset and keep the party going. Visit PillFreeHIV.com today to learn more. Brought to you by Vive Healthcare. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control your own body and get the health care everyone needs has been stolen. And now politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect your right to control your own body and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, you can help reclaim your rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hello. Dramatic pause this time. Dramatic <laughs> yeah. pause, right? I was, oh, not? you're giving Michael Barbaro. Pregnant pause. Oh. <laughs> I'm Sam Sanders. I'm Saeed Jones. And I'm Zach Stafford. And you are listening to Vibe Check. I've been watching comedy specials all morning, so I'm feeling a little punchy. Okay. I was watching Richard Pryor while drinking my coffee. I'll explain later. Wow. Oh, so you're coked up. <laughs> you are. Oh, wait. You did a line. <laughs> wait a minute now. Wait a minute now. Oh. Woo. Richard Pryor in the morning. That is. Come on. Richard Pryor in the morning. That's a sex act. You got, <laughs> you got laid. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Pryor in the morning Ooh. is a sex act. Uh, wow. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it's because of one of this week's topics. I just decided to watch Hassan Minaj's special. And 20 minutes in, I was like, I can't do this. And so I, I found wow. a Richard Pryor special instead. Anyway, <laughs> this week we are talking about Hassan Minaj recently admitting to major story embellishment in his stand-ups. Did he admit to them? Because reading that whole profile, I was kind of like, I'm not really getting a lot of self-reflection here. He used the phrase emotional truth. And that's the thing the man says when he's cheated, right? Uh Like (laughs) The number of times, I have my, my notepad here, the number of times I like circled, underlined emotional truth and the thoughts I have on it as someone who's written a memoir Oh my gosh, it was driving me crazy. So we're going to talk about all of that. Mm. And then we're also going to talk about, I can't even say it without laughing, which I think says a lot of perhaps about our feelings on the topic, uh, shoplifting. Girl, the girls are mobbing. The girls out here getting their luxury goods. Apparently it's on the rise. (laughs) Take it all. Yeah, corporations, politicians, red and blue are apparently very upset about it. Um, And so we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk how we feel about it, why it's going on. I don't want to presume to know what you two think, but I kind of feel like there's shoplifting and then there's real theft. 
Yes. And I think yeah. we know who the real thieves are. Mm-hmm. Come on. Is that fair? Okay. That's very so, fair. but before we get into all of that, friends, how are we feeling? Zach, let's start with you. How are you doing, baby? I feel so calm and recharged. Must I, be nice. It's, it's nice. <laughs> you know, it's nice. I spent the weekend doing nothing in Ojai. Some friends of mine, they moved there recently. So Ojai, California, it's a valley north of LA, near Santa Barbara. It's a very like hippy-dippy place. Lots of great energy. There's a vortex there. An it's like vortex. an anthropology store in the woods. Truly that. So anyway, they are living there now. So we spent the weekend up there. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that Ojai is where the rich and famous go to hide and not be seen. Because every place I went, I saw Sandra Oh. I saw her last night at a premiere, but I saw her there. I ran into Liv Tyler at uh, the front of a restaurant. I saw Donald Glover's black ass hanging out at breakfast. I was like, what What? is going on here? So I guess it is like the place, if you want to hide and not be seen and be left alone, you go to Ojai, California, and you get your crystals and you chill. And I feel great. I feel wonderful after that. They call it Ojai. They should call it O. Hi. Oh, celebrity. hi. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm oh, hi. But it was really nice. But also what it reminded me of is um, I think we've all hit an age in our lives where we know what f- certain friends do for us. Like, you know, you have your friend that you go out with. Mm. You have your friends that you party with. You have your friends that do a podcast with. Mm-hmm. These friends are my friends that I can go sit with for three days and talk about nothing but talk about everything at once. And it's the Love most it. lovely thing. And there's no stress. You're not worried or anything. So I think like... You know, I have that with you all when we go on trips, but it's it like, like a multiverse vibe check. I mean, it's straight. It's like <laughs> vibe check straight edition. It's like oh really, my. really okay. weird. But I would say everyone take stock in the friends that you can just sit with and just enjoy the vibes mm. and like go on a trip with them. Go to somewhere quiet. It's really nice. Sam, honey, how are you doing? I'm good. So I was in New York this past weekend for a dear friend's wedding, two dear mm. friend's wedding. Congratulations, Caitlin and Daniel. But I happened to be in New York and the run-up to the UN General Assembly, which is usually a big deal. It began Mm. this week, and it's supposed to be a meeting of all the major world leaders to tackle tough problems and get stuff done. Lots happening out there. A lot's happening, but the thing with Anga, as they call it this year, that really is affecting my vibe, is that no one's showing up. So Joe Biden is going... But four other world leaders are skipping. The leader of China is skipping. The leader of Russia is skipping. The leader of the UK is skipping. And Macron from France is skipping. Wow. This is a big deal because the whole point is the UN General Assembly shows how the world will work together to tackle big problems. But they can't do that if no one shows up. And what makes it really interesting is that this year, members of the quote-unquote global south, these are countries south of the equator, they've been saying this UNGA should be about us because the war in Ukraine has shown that the global north still likes to focus its energy and resources and care on problems facing the global north, not the global south. So how interesting that the time that it's supposed to be about the black and brown countries south of the equator a lot of these northern leaders just don't come. It's <sighs> wild. And when I think about that and what's going on here in America as well, several states trying to get Trump off the ballot before next year. Lots of folks saying Joe Biden is too old to run for president. Thinking of all of this together, it's got me saying when it comes to like the world order, who is in charge right now? Yeah. Who is running the uh-huh. ship? <laughs> and is anyone charting a path for like 
all of us to move forward. Doesn't feel like that. So my vibe is off this week. I, I agree. I've been following the UN news because last night was also Broadway for Biden. So while Biden's in town to speak to the UN, he did Biden. a Broadway That'll get event. Him. Yeah, that will get him. <laughs> Which I like lots of friends are part of it. Lots of great money. He's doing a ton of fundraisers. But I was like, huh, that and the UN World Order. Interesting combo there, uh, President Biden. Uh-huh. But um, I'm just confused again. Like what is going on in the world? Because like no one's showing up. When I heard that in the news, I was like, wait, it's you wild. can just not show just up not show to up. this? Especially the week in which Trudeau's accusing another world leader of killing someone <laughs> in Trudeau Canada. Has, has accused <laughs> India of killing a Sikh activist in Canada. Oh. He has sent an Indian diplomat back to India and was like, we're fighting now. This is wild. Like it's the, wild. Too much. the state of the global order is in retrograde. Do we have a sense of why they're skipping it? They've all refused to say why. The French prime minister said he had a previous engagement with like Prince Charles or something, but none of them have actually given real answers. Huh. It proves that like they know that the UN has become largely ineffective and yeah. a lot of the things that the UN could do, it gets blocked by the UN Security Council because a nation like Russia or China can veto anything mm -hmm. whenever they want. So for the last decade plus, the UN has just been this cesspool of inaction, which, yeah. and then once you realize that, it tracks that these leaders aren't showing up because they ain't doing yeah. shit there. It's really frustrating too, right? Because just to focus on climate change specifically, we're at this point, right, where scientists are like, look, man, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there are some mm -hmm. really it's important serious. deadlines coming up that are going to require, I guess I'm less interested in like who's the leader, but I'm more interested in like where is the substantive collaboration, yeah. right? Like we're reaching this yeah. point where it's like, no, I'm sorry, we literally are going to have to sit down together and to make some substantive commitments regarding things like carbon emissions and everything like that. And if people aren't sitting down at the table, yikes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then in the absence of leadership from actual world leaders, you got folks like Elon Musk basically setting war policy for the war in Ukraine. You know, he is yeah. a supplier of satellites mm -hmm. to Ukrainian forces, and he has been not just talking to Putin as well, but throttling satellite access to give Russia advantage on the battlefield. Yeah, when he like, like literally throttled several Ukrainian drones that were about yeah, to like lead an attack, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God. And when in the absence of world cooperation, People like Elon step up, yeah. and it's not good for anybody. Don't get yeah. me started. Uh, there is a vacuum of leadership. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. What's your vibe, Said? Okay, I'm going to try to be nice because I got to keep a lot of bullets in the chamber because I have a lot to say about Hassan Banash. I'm like, let me be nice <laughs> to everyone else. I, over the weekend, binge watch a television show that was not good. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But after I finished the show that was just like absurdly not good, I was like, okay, what is something that was critically praised that I'm pretty sure would be great to invest in? And I decided to finally start watching Fleabag. <gasps> oh. White British people, are you okay? Are y'all all right? <laughs> wait, wait, say. <laughs> oh my When you tweeted that, I just threw my oh. phone at Craig. I was like, look at this. <laughs> Let me oh tell you something I will goodness. never do. Speak ill of that show on the internet. What, don't do it. Look, here's you. the thing. They will kill I, so you. So I watched all of, I watched an entire first season. And and, and it's interesting because as I started, I, I was posting about this on Blue Sky. I basically started like live tweeting on Blue Sky as I was watching this. I call her Flea Lady. Flea Lady. <laughs> it, it seems that the consensus is that, and I agree with this, that season one of Fleabag, it is too intense. It's almost like emotionally mean in terms of oh. everything it's throwing at you. But mm -hmm. people oh. were like, but season two, 
two is triumphant. I'm a couple of episodes into season two. The premiere of season two is easily one of the best episodes of television I've seen in a very long time. Wow. And a very, very long time. But it's interesting seeing like, the show's doing a lot of things, but it's interesting seeing this like, I guess, gender flipped dirt bag. Mm-hmm. You know, like the drink too much, fuck too much, makes jokes at the wrong time, farting. Like, usually that would describe like a straight white male protagonist, I think. Usually when you kind of hear that kind of behavior and then it's like flea lady doing all of that. It's really good, but man, it was stressing me out is what I'm trying to tell you. And then I love Olivia Coleman, and she is oh, yeah. so mean on the so show mean. that it almost led me into an existential crisis because that's how wow. much I love Olivia Coleman. It, it's just a lot. I was shook. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm shook. I feel like white people want their prestige television to give them, like to existentially punch them in the face. Like when I think of like the shows that get the critical praise from predominantly like white gatekeepers, the shows are like about mean, unhappy people and kind of brutal narratives. And mm-hmm. it's been that way since Ooh. The Sopranos. Tony Soprano yeah. ushered in that era of anti-hero. Uh-huh. And I'm Mad tired Men, of it. Breaking yeah. Bad, it's succession. It's yeah. But the British really love like kind of mean and you know, before for the back was the show Flowers, which Olivia Coleman's in, which okay. is uh an equally complicated British Shoot. show that is like you watch it, you're like, why is she so awful? What is going on? But I don't know, Brit humor is about that darkness, yeah. which I love well, sometimes. If, if, if we have any, um, I mean I'm sure we have many fans of Fleabag, but if we have fans of British comedy, and is it even a comedy? I don't know. So I just feel very like out of sorts. <laughs> the, how the <laughs> show ends though is fabulous. It's fabulous, oh, okay. I think. So okay. the end of season two is fabulous. It. I might watch it. I don't think you should. I don't think you oh. would like it. Well, <laughs> okay. I, I don't think you, you would like it. And I don't I need to you. be, I, I don't know if I could handle you being stressed out in this way about oh, this show. She cares just, about me. I do. Okay. I care about okay. me. I care about me. <laughs> Well, that's where we are for now. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we want to thank all of you who sent us fan mail, reached out on social media. We absolutely loved hearing your messages. Keep them coming at vibecheck at stitcher.com. For now, let's jump in. Let's get into this mess, shall we? Let's Let's jump. Let's jump right into the arms of Hassan Minaj. Uh-uh, I'm jumping right out of his arms. <laughs> I don't trust pretty. that man to hold me. He is he ain't gonna hold you. Hassan, if we've learned anything about Hassan Minaj in the last week, it's he'll say, jump, jump, Sam, and then not <laughs> and then catch, won't you. catch you. <laughs> <laughs> and then talk about how you mailed him anthrax the next but week. But at least I'll be in his comedy special. I'll be famous in that way. Anywho, uh, what we are talking about is award-winning comedian, actor, talk show host, Hassan Minaj, recently in some trouble. There was a piece in The New Yorker this past week that basically said a lot of what he's been telling us in his comedy specials isn't quite true. So Hassan Minaj made a name for himself with comedy that touched on his own experiences with anti-Muslim discrimination to point out some larger truths about American culture. But turns out, A lot of the stories he used to make these points in his comedy are not actually true. The New Yorker fact-checked a bunch of the stories, and what they found was troubling. In one of his specials, Hassan said that someone sent a white powder to his house in the mail, which he thought was anthrax. He said his daughter was exposed to it and had to go to the hospital for possible anthrax exposure. Turns out... His daughter was never exposed to a white powder and never hospitalized, though he does still claim that a letter with white powder was sent to his house. 
In another story, Hassan talks about an FBI informant who infiltrated his family mosque in Sacramento. He says a white man who claimed to have converted to Islam would try to get men in the congregation to talk about jihad. And then in the special where he talks about this, Hassan says a joke that he made to this informant about training for a pilot's license that ended up getting Minaj's body slammed into the hood of a car by police. Guess what? That never happened. The informant in question never even worked in Sacramento. Then there was a third situation in which Hassan said that he roasted Jared Kushner at a Time Magazine gala after Kushner sat in an empty chair reserved for the murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. That empty seat never existed. When asked about all of these mistruths, Minaj told the New Yorker that his stories are, quote, grounded in truth and based on, quote, emotional truths. Emotional truth. <laughs> Y'all tell me, how should I feel about this? Because I already feel some kind of way. I feel icky. Ooh. I feel icky. How do y'all What did feel? Kellyanne Conway call it? Alternative facts. Facts. Yeah. Alternative facts. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, where, that was uh, not a name I expected from. to hear. <laughs> well, let's start with his formula. Because in the article... In an attempt to explain his fabrications, which are not unusual to comedy, and I think that's a lot of this conversation, is like, what are our reasonable expectations for fabrications in stand-up comedy, and then like, what begins to push the line? But I thought it was interesting because... Hassan Minaj defines his work as like a kind of Arnold Palmer in the piece. He says it's 70% emotional truth. Emotional truth is his phrase. Emotional truth. That Uh just feels so gaslighting. I'm sorry. I think you're right. And then 30% hyperbole. Because, like, I I talk to people a lot, like, when you're writing, you know, memoir, nonfiction, personal narrative, which obviously has actually a lot in common with, like, stand-up. You know, I'm like, there is, you know, there's factual truth. You know, my name is Hassan Minaj. I am from, what, Davis, California. That's a factual truth. And then there's an emotional truth, which is different. It's not the same thing. The emotional truth is it is difficult living in America as a Muslim American. It's difficult, you know, living in the wake of the war on terror as a brown person. We often have had Mm -hmm. to deal with being profiled, and that really impacts you and shakes you up. That's an emotional truth. Lying about facts to get to emotional truth, though, is like, yeah. what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. It, and to to add to that, you know, there's a lot of work currently in the zeitgeist that does use emotional truths to build out, you know, the story, the world around it. One of them is A Strange Loop, a show I've worked on for a while and mm-hmm. continue to work on. You know, Michael Jackson says in every interview, this is an emotional autobiography. I did not go through these exact same beats of the story as a black queer person, but a lot of it has touched mm. my life. A lot he of experienced my Inwood life. Daddy. I'm sorry. Yeah, he, he, he probably did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Many of us have. But, um, but you know, he he said up front, like, hey, here's the, the expectation. This is how we're gathering together. This is based off something I emotionally felt. But Hassan has worked as a journalist comedian for years. Well, before we even get to, to the journalist thing, and I like that you used that Michael R. Jackson example, Michael R. Jackson, in interviews, when asked about his work, shows us the boundaries, shows us the bright lines. And I think that's really important. Hassan Minaj has continued to lie and uphold fabrications in interviews until this New Yorker story. And here's the thing. It's not just that he kept lying. He refused to acknowledge 
what was truth and what was fiction in different contexts. The thing that complicates all of this is that Hassan Minaj is not just a comedian. He used his mm. comedic chops and his comedic popularity to parlay his way into a current event late night talk show called Patriot Act, where he was talking about politics and current events in the way that someone like Jon Stewart does. Yeah, and won an Emmy Award for it. Yes, and so if you are using stories about your life to establish yourself as an expert on current events, given your experience with anti-Muslim discrimination, we expect the stories to be true. Mm -hmm. And if you never tell us they aren't, it cheapens the journalistic work that you've done after that because all of that was informed and in part given to you because of these lies. Yeah. It would be like if you woke up tomorrow and read a variety that every little thing, like our entire friendship wasn't real. Like we knew each other, but we just put it together. Yeah. That like even my story at the beginning that I went to Ohio with friends wasn't real. I actually went there. Like it's like that is what's happening in this instance is that like part of it is true, but the complete isn't true. And you as a fan, as an audience member are being told as you enter a space like his show, our show, that this is authentic mm-hmm. and then finding out it's not. And that just yeah. feels bad yeah two things he said that i felt were really significant is hassan said in this new yorker piece and again this is in response to the journalist kind of asking him for like to justify these decisions hassan at one point says like the punchline is worth the fictionalized premise and then later he says like the kind of the point of his work is that he's always quote building to a pointed argument rather than just a riff rather than just trying to be funny and there are two issues with this one Hassan Minaj is not that funny. He's not that funny. I think the reason... <laughs> he's very pretty. Oh, he's and, so and let's pretty. talk about so it. Pretty. He's not that funny, but he's very handsome. And I think that's significant. I feel that Hassan Minaj overly relies on identity politics, newsworthiness, and autobiography because I think he understands that his jokes alone aren't that funny. And then the second problem is that if you're trying to build to a pointed argument using false facts, that undermines the argument at the end. Well, and this is the thing. This affects real people in his life. So one of the big stories in one of his recent specials was all about how he wanted to take this white woman to prom. And then right before prom, she dumped him because she didn't want to take a brown guy and her family didn't want her to take a brown guy to prom. She always claimed that that wasn't true. But he identified her in this special clearly enough that other people found out who she was and were doxing her for years. She Mm -hmm. still experiences it. She talked to the New Yorker about this and said it was so unfair and he knew it wasn't true. And then she says, yeah, in fact, I married an Indian guy. It was never about that. And so like this, this woman, this white woman who was like nowhere in his mess is now in his mess. (laughs) And like, this is a thing. It's like you stop just being a comedian when you set yourself up as the preeminent spokesperson for anti-Muslim sentiment in the country. Yeah. You take on a different role, and we expect you to tell the truth if you're in right. that role. Yeah. yeah. After I read the profile, I decided to watch some of his new special. I think the title is like King Jester on Netflix. And I, I watched about 20 minutes of it. And I was like, this just isn't... I was just like, you're really handsome and charming. So it's like charming. that thing where it's like... Is it funny? No. Does it make you like kind of chuckle or smile as you're listening to him before? Are you entertained? Yes. But is it laugh out loud funny? No. And so I, I changed and I watched um, Richard Pryor's Live in Concert from 1979, which is on Netflix. And it was so interesting because in the first five minutes of his special, Richard Pryor is talking about a man getting arrested in Long Beach, California and beaten up violently by cops. Like he's talking about mm. 
similar to Hassan, a very high stakes, newsworthy issue. This is 1979 in California. Shit was hot. And it was just so interesting that I was like, yeah, there is absolutely a way to talk about the FBI infiltrating mosques mm-hmm. or to talk about what happened, like with these anthrax incidents, literally just saying, you know, like Richard Pryor would just like frame it as a story or frame it in yeah. second person. Like, oh, you got to be careful in Long Beach. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't yeah. have to make yourself totally. the center of a news story. Yeah. I also, I want to ask about this and like whether... Hassan deserves to be cut any slack because I've been thinking more about how someone like Hassan Minaj fits into the culture. Mm. He is one of the few men of color who has been given something resembling a late night talk show. You know, that that realm has been ruled by white men for as long as it's existed. And I think he's still in the running for The Daily Show. He because he used to be on The Daily yeah. Show. Uh-huh. And I wonder, though, how much of the sell of someone like Hassan Minaj to occupy a role that a John Oliver or a John Stewart occupies, how much of that has to be buttressed by this idea of brown authenticity? Mm-hmm. How much of the sell of Hassan in this cultural moment is, well, he's better than John Oliver and John Stewart and Jimmy Kimmel because he's brown and he went through this hardship. And how much of what Hassan was doing was fitting into that cultural landscape mm-hmm. where the expectation for public intellectuals like him is that what gives them a cut above at an edge is how they and their bodies have lived out these traumatic experiences. There's an expectation that any Muslim we see on screen has gone through it, that any black person we see on screen has gone through it. And how much of it was him being a prisoner to that expectation? Oh, I think 100% it's him being a prisoner to that expectation. That's why I have a little empathy in the situation because he saw it scale real time. Like we forget that he began on The Daily Show, which was him among many people of color fighting for one slot for airtime. And a lot of them used their personal experiences to amplify the comedy they were doing. I mean, that's what John Stewart was really famous for is deploying those correspondents to go into the world. So I think he realized really quickly, you know, I'm a beautiful, charming, articulate Muslim man, if I map the horrors of this experience at large in America onto my body, I will be heard louder. And it shows that like he had to do that. It's really complicated that he had to do that. John Stewart didn't. John Stewart as a white man got to oh, yeah. just Well, the worst example it. is John Oliver. John Oliver is considered yeah. the preeminent commentator on American politics and culture. He's not even American. Not even American. He's <laughs> never had to experience what it with being American. He's gone through no real major hardships. Oh, but I see. He He's never had to, to like personally align himself. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, there is this pressure on creatives of color, especially folks that deal with current events. Mm-hmm. There's an expectation that the story must live on and in our body. And I feel bad for him because of that. Yeah. And I remember when I, the height of my crime reporting, I would be on BBC or whatever talking. And every time the interviewer would ask me as a black man, Mm -hmm. how does it feel Mm -hmm. to watch black people get killed all the time? And my white colleagues never Never were asked that. And yes, there's a reality to like, my body looks more like the person I'm talking about. But Mm -hmm. the fact that consumers, that media wants us to kind of be in the violence itself, I think is part of what Hassan did. And that's what he was navigating this water. So I have a little empathy for him. So that's kind of interesting because it makes me think of, you know, James Baldwin. One of the ways he distinguished himself very early on is he went for Richard Wright's throat. by Basically saying that the way American culture and certainly literature was set up then, and I would argue often still now, 
that, you know, a lot of artists have to become a race man, like, you know, like mm-hmm. race first kind of in your work. And he certainly said that Richard Wright did that with Native Son, because that's the only way to kind of gain entry. The only writers of color that would gain the attention of like the white gatekeepers are those who would be like, I'll be your official black person. I'll be your official mm-hmm. brown person. Also significantly, one other thing I do want to point out with Hassan Minaj, I think we also need to think about the time. In 2019, he was what one of Time Magazine's most influential people. And Trevor Noah wrote, quote, we've needed Hassan's voice since Donald Trump came down that golden escalator. Oh, and yeah. we didn't need it before? Exactly. Turned immigrants and Muslims into his target. So I just want to point out that also, and I think this is bigger than Hassan, and I think actually this is bigger than racial politics, Hannah Gatsby, Lin-Manuel Miranda, like it's actually when we look post-2016, there were a lot of big names that emerged in pop culture whose work maybe isn't being looked upon as fondly now because Mm -hmm. we're beginning to have more perspective about how we feel about art post-Trump. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It was like like Hannah Gatsby raging against Pablo Picasso, Lin-Manuel Miranda being like, what if all these slave owners were played Mm -hmm. by people Mm -hmm. of color? Like, I think at the time, and let's say 2017, 2018, up to 2019, we were so craven for work that felt like a panacea to how Trump made us feel that I think we kind of had some blinders on. Well, and we were convinced, and I think part of this was informed by this beautifully utopian view of America that Obama introduced to us. We had eight years of post-racial Yeah, it was like a throwback to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and and Uh it felt like there was an expectation that the Mm -hmm. pop culture and art that would come out of that era would have artists like Hassan, like Hannah, like Lin-Manuel, in which their art was their art, but their bodies were also part of the art and it was all political. Mm -hmm. And I think that is too much pressure to put on marginalized creatives because it's a pressure that white creatives don't have to deal with. And as idealistic as it seems, you know, this Lin-Manuel landscape, it's not fair to expect people like Hassan Minaj or whoever else to wear an entire community's trauma on their bodies, especially when it didn't even happen. I hope what we get from this is one, an ability to have a bigger and better bullshit meter on all these celebrities. If the story is too good to be true, it might just not be true. And two, how do we free creatives from the expectations we place on their identities? How do we free them from that? I want to be a black creative who gets to be a creative. I'm always black. It's always part of the work. But don't expect me to perform trauma. Don't expect me to perform a certain presentation of blackness because that's the box y'all think I should fit into. I think that's what Hassan's story is telling me. I think Hassan's story is telling me, be funny. Like, like if the if if the praise and the accolades for you as a stand-up comedian is like he's funny and he has a good point about yeah. some serious. I'm like, no, yeah. just be funny, man. Just be funny. He will stay pretty. He's though. very beautiful about today. That's all I care about. Today. He is a very handsome about. man. You'll always have that Hassan. Uh, You'll always be will. beautiful, Hassan Minaj. All right, listeners, let us know how you feel about this Hassan drama. Let us know about how much truth we should ever expect from performers in the public eye. And let us know what comedy specials you're enjoying these days. And especially like truth from stand-up comedy. I mean, I think we all give them like a little wiggle room, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Also, I want to be fair to Hassan. He issued a response to Variety this week. And he said, quote, 
All my stand-up stories are based on events that happened to me. Yes, I was rejected from going to prom because of my race. Yes, a letter with powder was sent to my apartment that almost harmed my daughter. Yes, I had an interaction with law enforcement during the war on terror. Yes, I had variosal repair surgery so we could get pregnant. Yes, I roasted Jared Kushner to his face. I got to say, not a great statement. I think Drew Barrymore wrote that one. Anyway, got to move on. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back with another kind of theft. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Hey there, Zach Stafford, co host of Vibe Check. And something I heard really early on in my career was this phrase that has never left me it is, you can't be what you can't see. And for me, that is so true. All of the black people I got to grow up and watch on television, be journalists and so much more are the foundation to why I continue to have a media career. And that's the case for so, so many people. And if you're looking for the next generation of influential black voices in media, you can find all of them on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, Now they are. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back and we are switching gears. We're talking about resale theft in this segment. So to get us going, I just want to go through a few facts and a reason why today we're deciding to talk about this. And the big reason is because this week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the state of California would provide almost $270 million to police forces across the state to help them expand their arsenal in combating what they're calling retail theft or smash and grab robberies happening across the state. California isn't alone in this. Nine other states have passed new laws cracking down on retail theft, and Congress is now considering two bills that would make this a federal issue. So things are getting pretty, pretty hot. A federal issue is kind of a scary federal issue. You know, this has become a really big story, mostly because TikTok, I would argue, videos of people mobbing places like Louis Vuitton, Yves Saint Laurent, other luxury stores, just running into them with masks, grabbing thousands and thousands of items and running out have become a really common thing to watch on internet. Have y'all seen this on your TikToks? I have to be honest, I haven't seen this. 
You haven't seen this? I'm on TikTok all the time and I haven't seen Oh this, my so. God. I, I see them I've constantly. It's always so huh. weird. Like when it happens, the security guards pretend to like <laughs> run so a little bit. Then they're like, go, girl, go on ahead. Good look. Go on. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> like, and they progressively have been like, they come in and it seems like every worker is like, girl, fuck it. Like I like, just okay, like, go, go for it. it. It's not worth I'm it. I'm on break. I'm on break. It's not, and it's <laughs> really not leave, worth it. Walk out that door. You are no longer my business. That's girl, yeah. truly. I'm not paid enough. It's like, I can't even work in here by that bad. Why would I risk my back, which there we're going to get go. to that. So, you know, there is a lot of like controversy around, is this a thing? Is it not a thing? But the data we're getting from a lot of uh, retailers and watchdogs is showing that there is a rise. And what they're calling it is that there's a rise in what we know as shrink. And that's a term retailers use, meaning it's the recorded difference between inventory you think you have and what you actually have. And that's huh. becoming a huge gulf between those things, resulting in almost $90 billion in losses in the past year, which is a lot of money. So what do we think about this high level before we get into the details? Do we care about these these thefts? Is it hurting us as a society? What do you think? Well, I just want to start. These companies are fucking lying because we already have learned in the last couple of years that these companies were blaming shrink on theft and that wasn't that's not actually the case right they were blaming these losses on theft and that's why if you've gone to a Dwayne Reed in the last year or so and you've gone to get shampoo or something like that entire aisle will be behind plexiglass when actually theft is happening it is but it's not actually taking away so much money from these companies as they would like to believe yeah. i think their shareholders are i am just shocked by the imagery You know, you look at what's happened to America post-COVID. During the pandemic, we had the largest number of Americans taken out of poverty in decades Mm. because of COVID assistance. That assistance was allowed to lapse, and now America's poverty rate has skyrocketed again. Mm -hmm. Hasn't, like, child poverty doubled in the last year? Exactly. And so when I see these images of, like, baby formula behind a cage inside of a CVS or a Walgreens— I'm not mad about the baby formula possibly being stolen. I'm mad about mothers not being paid enough to support their kids. I'm mad about mothers not having food assistance for their kids. I'm mad about mothers not getting paid maternity leave to take care of their kids. It's not about the stolen formula. It's about systems and structures in a society that doesn't help parents be parents and doesn't help low-income people live a life. And so for me, the larger question is, why do so many people feel the need to steal? Mm-hmm. Why do so many people feel the need to steal? And yeah. as soon as you unpack any of the numbers, you realize they have a lot of reason to do so. On top of just Americans' minimum wage not keeping pace with inflation at all, we have an issue in which American companies take billions in wage theft from U.S. workers every single year. According to The Guardian, quoting a study from the Economic Policy Institute, Workers in the U.S. have an estimated $50 billion plus stolen from them every year through wage theft. And that surpasses all robberies, burglaries, and motor vehicle thefts combined. And this wage theft can include many things. Employers not compensating for time worked, not giving minimum wage or overtime, misclassifying employees as independent contractors, not providing meal breaks, confiscating Mm -hmm. tips— Etc. That kind of theft nobody wants to talk about, and that's bigger. So as long as that's still happening and we don't pay people enough to live, I will never get upset about someone stealing baby formula from CVS. I yeah. just won't. And just to add to that, only 10% 
of all thefts reported are luxury items. The rest are mm. Walmart, Target, goods, yeah. like mm -hmm. health goods, beauty yeah. products to wash your hair, take care of your babies, all that. Mm -hmm. That's the majority of them being yeah. taken. What seems significant to me is that wage theft, like Sam is talking about, you can't visualize it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like wage theft exists in documents, in spreadsheets. There's never going to be a video or, or photo of wage theft happening, which I think mm -hmm. makes it difficult to perceive. It literally makes it more difficult to perceive. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that corporations and politicians then, it's not just that someone stealing an, uh, like an item from a grocery store, like there is footage, you can visually perceive it. I think it's fear-mongering because what's, mm -hmm. what, what is actually effectively happening is that people who are looking to have confirmation bias kind of, you know, further juiced up are getting the fuel they need. And so you're seeing, I mean, this happened a few weeks ago here in central Ohio, near Columbus, where I live. A 21-year-old pregnant mother was shot to death by police in a Kroger parking lot. Her name was Takia Young, and it, it started as one of those incidents. She was accused of stealing something from the Kroger, and, you know, the altercation and confrontation made its way into the parking lot, and she was shot through, I believe, the windshield when of her car and, and killed. She died, her unborn baby died. And it's like, over what? Over, you know, a product that, you know, it, it won't even make a line item for the, the corporation of Kroger. It's just not worth it. There have been stories about grocery store security guards have actually killed a couple mm. of people yeah. chasing them into the parking lot. Cops feel more justified in their abuse. Neighbors yeah. begin to kind of surveil each other. So I, I, to me, I just feel like there's no there there, yeah. but the yeah. result is that we're essentially policing each other in often lethal ways. Well, and I want to point out here, even if you take out all the wage theft, the amount of money that America pays its lowest earning workers is still criminal. So according to the Economic Policy Institute, our current federal minimum wage, seven twenty-five. It is now worth, adjusted for inflation, just about what the minimum wage was in February 1956. In 1956, oh. the minimum wage was 75 cents per hour, which translates now to $7.19 in June 2022 dollars. So basically, low-wage workers haven't gotten a real wage increase since 1956. Mm -hmm. And we have the audacity to tell anybody in that cohort who's taken diapers yeah. from a grocery store that they're the wrong ones? I don't think so. I just yeah. don't think so. And the other part of this that politicians are focusing on, um, they call it organized crime. So what they're saying is that mobs or gang networks are organizing mass groups of people to go into Walmarts, take a ton of product, targets, et cetera, and then resell them online. But the emergence of e-commerce has made it really easy for us to sell goods online and less likely to be busted up by the police. Like when we saw, um, it was very common in a lot of bodegas that sometimes was stolen goods that were brought into bodegas in low-income areas and resold. So 
people are pointing to that being like, look at them, they're making money, look how bad this. But I'm like, to Sam's point, they're making no money at the jobs if they have that job. So yeah. if they're able to steal some diapers, sell it for less than what inflation's put it at, make it more accessible for their community to buy and then also have a little yep. bit of profit, I get why. And I think we as a society need to be more empathetic to these quote unquote criminals when they're doing you know street-based crimes, quote unquote, to just stay alive. It's like, this is what they're having to engage with. These are the type of, of economies they need to create for them to breathe another day, to eat another day. And we yeah. see the direct impact when corporations don't think about how we're eating or breathing in Walmart, especially. You know, you look at Chicago earlier this year, because of theft in four stores on the south and west side of the city, they shut them down. By shutting down those Walmarts, those areas no longer There's have food any deserts. access to fresh mm -hmm. food. So the deserts of Chicago have expanded tremendously. And now people can't even eat well and are struggling even more. Well, and then what's happened is like these companies, these major corporations want you to feel sympathy for them. They want us to feel sympathetic for CVS, for Walgreens, for Walmart. Those chains have decimated local businesses for yeah. decades. Mm -hmm. yeah. Local businesses that had forged relationships with their communities to avoid things like rampant theft. Mm -hmm. Part of why you see all this theft happen in stores like That's that is because yeah. those companies have no real ties to their communities. Yep. And they are predatory against their own communities. Yeah. yeah. They're like, these are faceless people. Like, this isn't, yep. you know, Aunt Sue down the street running the store. This exactly. is, you know, exactly. Bentonville HQ making a ton of money by jacking up the prices of diapers. Like, that's yep. why we're going after them. Yeah. It's interesting to me the frequency with which when I'm in one of those big box stores, those big companies, I go look. And for me, it's always I'm like, I'm looking for like a, a conditioner or <laughs> shampoo or something like, you know what I mean? And I can't get to it because, first of all, <laughs> I am never I'm just never going to call to the front of the store. <laughs> no. And have one of those people. I'm not. And so to me, I feel like these companies are trying to use this theft stuff as an excuse to get us to just become online customers. You know oh, what I mean? Like, it, it, yeah, I feel yeah. like something bigger is going on because because often what happens is I'm like, damn it, I guess I'll just get this conditioner on Amazon Prime. It'll be easier to just have it delivered. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I just to me, I feel like poor people and these imagined thieves are being used as pawns in like a bigger scheme. And we're oh, gonna yeah. look up five, 10 years from now. And as consumers, the landscape's gonna be very different yeah. because of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we should definitely, you know, a big kind of yes and to what Saeed just said, whenever you see the expansion of the police as a response to something like this, you should be like, wait a minute, something must be larger at play because these are structures expanding yeah. and changing. So for instance, in Georgia, we're finding out that a Walmart there is wanting to block potential theft. They're not even open yet. They want to, they're like, we're opening a store, but to oh, block so it's potential theft, it's not even theft, open yet. It's not even wow. open yet. They're like, we're going to build a police station inside of it. We're police inside can hang of the out Walmart. and just watch and do clerical work. And Georgia's so funny. They're like, y'all heard of cop city. How about cop suburb? Like, what Cop is going suburb, on? Cop Walmart. <laughs> We know historically police do not yeah. act right on yep. the job. So yeah, so this idea that, you know, oh, to save our profits, let's mm -hmm. put in a system no. that is actually really violent on every yeah. level is really yeah. concerning. I do want to end this by just talking about things that we can do to fight some of this stuff. One, the biggest answer for me is shop local. Shop yeah. at places where there are people you know in your neighborhood where the money is going to the neighborhood. Two, give to your local food bank. You'd be surprised at how many people in America right now today are hungry, do not have yeah. enough food. And three, call your congressperson and ask for an increase in the minimum wage. It's too low. It's too low. Yeah. That's my two cents, three cents. Something I'll add about the food bank, though, 
take it two steps further. Mm. Do a little bit of research. And I learned this during the pandemic when, for me, around Thanksgiving, I, I definitely try to think more about like donating to food banks. And yeah. just because a food bank has a bigger name in your region or community, mm. you know, because of advertising, it doesn't mean it's the best. Huh. So I think I do, I, I would say, do a little bit of due diligence. Yeah. And this is often true with nonprofits and community. It's a whole thing. But I would just say it's something I learned that I was mm-hmm. someone was like, X group. They get a lot of funding and actually they're not very helpful. But this other group is more, you know, on the ground, really helping. Okay. If you're going to take the effort to donate to a food bank, I think obviously you want to make sure the stuff is actually reaching people. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes yeah, it's not. Yeah, and also pick yeah, yeah. a place that you, like an issue you really yeah, care about. Mutual you know, aid really groups interested. is a great yeah, like resource, find, for sure. But find nonprofits that you want to have a relationship with. I think like if you're thinking, if you're inspired today to be like, I want to give to food banks, go find one that does a local drive and no, get to know the staff. Get on their listservs. Yeah. Like I'm currently, I'm very passionate about the IATSE food drives that are happening. So IATSE is the union that does, you know, the caterers, the grips, the electricians on sets. They're not the sexy part of the strike that's happening in Hollywood that the people were forgetting about. So me and other producers have been, you know, every month getting food and bringing it to our local chapter where everyone's working. My brothers and I, you know, having some issues with jobs because they can't work. And it's like, you know, I get an email once a month letting me know what what do they need. And if I can help, then I will help. So I think just like to Sam's point, know your community, know the needs, step up. And a lot of these other issues I think would go go away, hopefully. Yeah. All right, with that, we're going to take another quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with our recommendations. Some people like to deep clean every Saturday morning. I prefer to spend a few minutes every day keeping things fresh with Lysol. Lysol's toilet bowl cleaner disinfects both the toilet brush and bowl for two-in-one disinfection, killing 99.9% of viruses and bacteria. (sighs) Don't just clean, Lysol clean. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Okay, we're back. And before we end the show, we'd each like to share something that's helping us keep our vibes right this week. Zach, you want to get us started? Yeah, I'd love to. So something that's helping me get my vibe right this week is re-watching a movie I've seen a few times now, which is called Theater Camp. It just came out on Hulu. It was in theaters for a little bit, but like every movie these days, it stays in theaters for like two days and then goes straight to a streaming platform, which is a whole other conversation. It's really uh-huh. wild. But the movie stars Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, Noah Galvin. It is a mockumentary about a theater camp in upstate New York. A bunch of young, mostly queer kids uh, going to theater camp and the theater camp is under financial duress. So it's about that. But it's like, the funniest little thing, it's if you so like Best in Show, which was mm. the mockumentary in the early 2000s about a dog competition, you will really love this. And I also would say like, it is the best usage of theater kids ever. Like there's a lot of Broadway stars in it and they are fantastic in it. So definitely check it out. It's fun. 90 minutes. I love a 90 minute movie these days. Bring back 90 out. minute Goodbye. movies, please. I laughed out loud. It was cute and knew exactly what it wanted to be. Also, Io's in it and we love her. 
Io's currently in like three movies out she right now. Working. So she is, she is everywhere. Working. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Sam, what about you? I want to recommend the new album from an R&B singer called Cleo Soul. S-O-L. The album is called Heaven. It is just like some soothing, yes. soothing R&B. Yes. It's so good. Some of y'all might know Cleo Soul. She is a voice on a lot of albums from Salt. This very secretive black funk soul collective. She oh, you mentioned Salt yeah. last week when talking about Jungle. Exactly. Yeah. Cleo Soul has also worked with Jungle before. Okay. But she has a voice that sounds like incense and a 90-minute deep tissue massage. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. It's just smooth and black and soulful. And this is like R&B for like the Erica Badu set for the motherfuckers who burn <laughs> incense in their home and who want to just center themselves. Put this on to vibe and thrive. It is a wonderful wind down. Cleo Soul's new album, I can't say enough about it, is good. We love a Neo Soul. Yes. That's true. Yes. I, and I, I mean, I always do, but I feel, especially this time of year, easing into mm-hmm. fall. Mm-hmm. Said, what's keeping your vibe right? So I thought I would do something a little different this week and read a poem that's been on my mind. Mm. While I was in Argentina earlier this summer, I spent a lot of time listening to Kevin Young. He's the poetry editor there. Really Mm -hmm. great guy. He does the New Yorker Poetry Hour where he talks to poets and they read a poem from the archives and the conversation is just really great. So this poem came up in one of the episodes I listened to and I just kept listening to it, kept listening to it. I keep reading it. It's just beautiful. It's by Tracy K. Smith, an award-winning poet. She was a poet laureate a few years ago. The title of this poem is, We Feel Now a Largeness Coming On. Being called all manner of things from the dictionary of shame, not English, not words, not heard, but worn, born, carried, never spent. We feel now a largeness coming on, something passing into us. We know not in what source it was begun, but wrapped. We watch it rise through our fallen, our slain, our millions dragged, chained. Like daylight setting leaves alight, green to gold to blinding white, like a spirit caught flame in flesh. I watched a woman try to shake it once from her shoulders and hips, a wild, annihilating fright. Other women formed a wall around her, holding back what clamored to rise. God, devil, ancestor. What black bodies carry through your schools, your cities, Do you see how mighty you've made us, all these generations running, every day stealing ourselves against it, every day coaxing it back into coils, all the while feeding it, all the while loving it. That we feel now a largeness coming on by Tracy K. Smith. It's mm-hmm. in the November 16th, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. Uh, I love it. Why do you think that's been sticking with you so much? Um, I mean, one, I just think it's beautiful. I love the music mm-hmm. of the language. It really sings from line to line. 
But I think, you know, I just, being Black is such a miracle in my life. I am so grateful, but it's a complicated miracle, you know? And so I just, there's something in the way, you know, she's not like pointing to history dates and facts and figures, but she finds a way to capture, which to me feels like the swell of history within us, within our blood. You know, do you see how mighty you've made us, you know, even with all the complication? And I just, it's just beautiful. One, is just beautiful, but I just, yeah. that's a feeling that's been on my heart a lot lately. Yeah. Love it. I love it. Thank you. And I loved that your reading so, of it. Yeah, your reading of it. I was like, let me just lean back. Come on. <laughs> come on. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, friends, what are you feeling or not feeling this week? What's your vibe? Check in with us at vibecheck at stitcher.com. And that's that's the show, girl. We did that's, it. That's it. We did it. We, we made it. Another week. Show. Another we week, another week a lot. <laughs> I'll never stop saying we did it, Joe. I'll never stop saying. It's pretty fun. It's, it's pretty it's fun. fun. It's pretty good. All right. Well, thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of Vibe Check. If you love the show and want to support us, please make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast listening platform and tell a friend, write a review, post, do all the things. Do all the things. Huge thank you to our producer, Chantel Holder, engineers Sam Kiefer and Brendan Burns, and Marcus Holm for our theme music and sound design. Also, special thanks to executive producers, Nora Ritchie at Stitcher and Brandon Sharp from Agenda Management and Production. And friends, don't forget we want to hear from you. You can email us at vibecheck at stitcher.com. Keep in touch with us on Instagram. We're still on Twitter, too. I'm on Blue yeah. Sky. I'm on there. Okay? Oh, we'll have there. fun with Hello. the spider webs over there. The cobwebs. Yeah. <laughs> they, know, they know going over there. <laughs> Did you see Elon mom. was going to start charging everybody for Twitter? Watch. All right. And I'll be back on Here. GeoCities. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> you can find Black us Planet. at The Ferocity, <laughs> yeah. at Zach Staff, and at Sam Standards. Use the hashtag VibeCheckPod. Uh, see you all for another episode next Wednesday. Bye. <laughs> Stitcher. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.